5.25 trillion plastic articles are on the surface of our oceans today. In effect, every ocean of the world is polluted with plastic. What can be done? Welcome to Renewable Future from the Renewable Materials Company, Store Enso. Anna Cummins has seen all this plastic at first hand. She's the co-founder of an organisation called Five Gyres and has literally sailed the world's oceans, researching the problem and raising awareness. She was at a Store Enso event recently and we had a chance to speak with her. So for this podcast, we're, we're just going to let the interview run. We start by talking with her about those 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic. And what does that really mean? And how can we put that into perspective? The important takeaway from that number, 5.25 trillion particles weighing 270,000 metric tons. What we found when we broke those particles down further is that you would expect as the particles get smaller and smaller you would find more and more of them. But we found something different. We found as those particles got smaller and smaller down from the size of a grain of rice to, to a salt and pepper flake, they were disappearing. So where are they going and why would you not find more? We hypothesize that either plastics fragment so much that they start to sink to the ocean floor, they get eaten by marine organisms and sequestered in the seafloor, um, and they circulate around the world. So I think uh, one of the main takeaways for us is that we cannot clean the oceans from 5.25 trillion particles. You cannot skim the entire surface of the ocean without removing tons of life. So the, the, the purpose of this study was to show people that solutions lie upstream in the way we design products, manufacture products, and regulate products. All these sort of ocean cleaning projects are are useless? Well, um, I would love to be proven wrong. Um, There is a lot of interest in ocean cleanup because it sounds uh, like a great solution for people, and then we can wipe our hands of the problem. I do think that there's a role for cleanup, and if we can remove some of the large fragments, uh, the large pieces, the fishing floats and the tangled netballs, that is a a good thing to do because those will break down further into more microplastics. Um, But I think... If we really want to get a handle on this problem, we have to go upstream to the source of the problem and, the, and change design. So when you say that, change design, what, what do you mean by that, going upstream and changing design? Yeah, well, let's say you look at a plastic water bottle lying on the beach. We've all seen that. Um, we could look at solutions that include more customer education, more recycling bins, more infrastructure. But really, the problem began as soon as we designed this bottle that has no value or little value at the end of its life cycle. So can we take that concept upstream? And by that, I mean when we're first conceptualizing that packaging. What's going to happen to it when we're done with it? Where will it go? What will it turn into? These are the kinds of questions that designers and manufacturers need to ask from the outset of the design, not what happens to it when it ends up in the ocean or on a beach. Tell me a little bit about Five Gyres, because this is, I mean, this is your life's work in, in a sense. How did you get started into this and, and what is Five Gyres? So I first got started um, hearing a lecture about ocean plastic in 2001. I was shocked that no one was talking about this. Um, And that's not that long ago, but there was very little global awareness about this problem. Um, I stayed current on the topic. And then in 2008, I had my first chance to sail across the North Pacific gyre. 
And for people who aren't familiar with the term gyre, a gyre is simply a circulating current system that acts like a massive vortex in the oceans. So on this trip, I had a chance to see firsthand what we're talking about, oceans covered with microplastic particles. And it was also on that trip that my now husband proposed with a ring made out of garbage, and we decided we needed to do something more to get attention. And we realized that there was a data gap, that there was no research on the Southern Hemisphere, the South Atlantic Gyre, the South Pacific Gyre, the Indian Ocean Gyre. So that was our inspiration to start Five Gyres in 2009 with an initial goal of going to all of the world's five subtropical gyres, collecting research, and then disseminating those results to inspire people to change. So that really took our first three, four years was doing that firsthand research. We're now really seeing the power of science to drive solutions when we have good information that we can use to inform policy. So that's really what we're focused on now. So if we take it back a quick step then, you went on this first journey uh, and you started collecting information. What sort of information did you get and did it differ a lot than when you started visiting the other gyres later on? So on this first journey, and here I want to give credit to um, a man who has really changed uh, this issue completely. His name is Captain Charles Moore out of Long Beach, California. He was the first to really go out and popularize this issue, do research in the North Pacific Gyre, and then use that to um, engage mainstream media in, in solutions. So on that first trip, I was expecting to see an island the size of Texas, a garbage patch, a this garbage island. This was the media world, or word at the time, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagined it would look like that. And when we got there, I was, I was surprised to see that the ocean is blue and pristine as far as you can see with the occasional fleck. Here's a bottle cap. Oh, there's a toothbrush. Oh, there's a little piece of styrofoam. On and on and on for weeks and weeks and weeks. But it was pulling out our samples where you could really see what's what's happening, that we've turned our oceans into what we now call a plastic smog. At night when we pulled up samples, we found that they were full of fish. And when we looked into the stomachs of these fish, we found that they were full of plastic. And so that was my first inkling at just how broad this issue is and that it's affecting the food chain. So those were the, the two things that really stuck with me. And that was the first trip. And then you make this boat out of plastic and travel from the west coast of the U.S. all the way across to Hawaii. How did that go? I mean, did it did it work? Did you get there? Yeah, yeah, that was my husband's crazy idea. Um, So I'll just tell you a brief word about my husband, Marcus Erickson. Um, His first exposure to this issue of plastic was actually as a Marine in the first Gulf War. Um, Seeing the connection between petroleum, fossil fuels and uh, and human rights that we send our young men off to to kill and be killed, uh, at least I'm speaking from the US perspective here, yeah. to secure access to foreign oil. And uh, that led him on a journey, and we actually met in the living room of the man I mentioned before, Captain Charles Moore. And um, our first big journey together was crossing the North Pacific, and that was when he proposed. And we decided to do something a little bit out of the ordinary, and that was what led to building Junk Raft. So it took two and a half months to collect 15,000 plastic bottles, a Cessna fuselage, a bunch of junk from from old ships, and to build this kind of monstrous looking thing that we called junk raft. Now, I was the ground support. Um, There were only two men on board, my husband, uh, Marcus, and our friend, Joel Paschal. This was not a journey for the faint of heart. It took three months. We thought it would take six weeks. They uh, passed through three different hurricanes. So I was on land monitoring the weather and running the communications. And I watched these storms, you know, go just south of my, at the time, fiance. Um, 
But I think two of the things that really stayed with us, one is a fish that Marcus caught that when he cut open the stomach had 17 pieces of plastic inside. And we already knew that plastics were a vehicle for introducing chemicals into the food chain. So he didn't eat that fish. So he's starving. It's taking three times as long as it should take. They need food, presumably, and yet they won't eat this fish. They didn't eat this fish. Um, They were down to peanut butter and granola when an amazing thing happened. There was a a British woman named Roz Savage who was actually rowing a rowboat from San Francisco to Hawaii to raise awareness about plastic at the same time that we were doing this junk raft project. She -hmm. ran out of water. Her water maker broke. Her backup water maker broke. Meanwhile, there is junk raft and they're about 100 miles away. So her mother from London called me. I called them on the satellite phone. It took them about a week to find each other. And they found each other in the middle of the Pacific, these two crazy voyages. She had food to give them, and they had water to give her and a water maker. And they kept each other alive. And they kept each other alive. And we're still friends with her to this day. I'm sure you are. (laughs) Yeah, you don't lose a bond like that. Yeah, yeah, in a hurry. My gosh. Okay. And after that, then you you started going around. You make this point about the fish. And and, and tell us exactly, how does this work then? Plastic seems to attract chemicals while water will not attract these chemicals. Or or why is the plastic so dangerous then? Yeah, so plastic in the ocean and and many different things can absorb these contaminants. But plastic is petroleum-based and there's a synergy between some of these contaminants that are oleophilic or lipophilic. They're attracted to uh, fatty substances and they stick to plastic like a sponge. Then when that plastic is ingested by a marine organism, those uh, contaminants can then be attracted to the fatty tissues of, of the animal. And let's say that a small fish the size of the, the mctophid or a lanternfish has eaten 50 pieces of plastic, that some of which may pass through the system, other, others may stay in the system, desorbing those chemicals. Then a bigger fish, like a mahi-mahi or a tuna or a squid, uh, will feed on these mctophid fish, and they're getting the sum total of contaminants in those smaller fish. So as these contaminants work their way up the food chain, uh, they can become much more concentrated to by the time we eat that mahi-mahi or that tuna, we are potentially ingesting the chemicals that are in the tissues of that fish. I mean, how, how big a problem is this? If we assume then that plastic is attracting these chemicals, the marine life is eating the, the plastic or, or at least ingesting this plastic, the chemicals are staying on in, in, in marine life, this is presumably going on to humans as well. Or, or what's happening here? Yes. Um, so there is there is reason to be concerned. Uh, the science isn't yet conclusively showing that plastic affects humans through seafood and through the food chain. But as I said before, we have enough information to to suggest that there could be concern for people and that we are at a turning point right now. Um, there are statistics showing the the increases of plastic coming, a 40% increase predicted in the next 10 years or so. But that isn't a given yet. Um, So we can take this information about plastic um, that suggests that humans and animals and ecosystems are threatened, and and we can make a choice. Do we continue using fossil fuel-based materials for our packaging? Can we transition away from from plastics to look at more renewable materials? And can we look at reducing our footprint overall, reducing our packaging, and looking to more reusable systems change? So sorry, the trend today then is that there's if things carry on like they are, there will be a 40% increase in the production of plastic globally. Yes, that, is, that those are some of the statistics coming from industry. I want to go actually back to uh, when it comes to these five gyres. I mean, if we if you explain to me sort of the, the flow of a, a plastic bottle on your local beach in Santa Monica that ends up in the water, what happens to that? 
that, that plastic bottle. Sure. If there's a plastic water bottle, and I want to emphasize with the cap on, because with the cap off, that plastic will sink. So roughly 50% of the plastics that we make that are on the market today um, will sink. So what's on the ocean floor is a big unknown. We do know from, from divers that plastics have been found in some of the deepest trenches in the ocean. The floating plastics, though, um, if they are not picked up on your local beach, will get swept up into these massive current systems called gyres. So my closest gyre, for example, the North Pacific, which extends from California out to Japan and back, that water bottle in six to 10 years, roughly, can make that full journey from California to Japan and back, circulating around and around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. As these plastics are traveling around the currents, they're not biodegradable because they're made from fossil fuels, but they are photodegradable. So UV light and mechanical action from waves and hurricanes will fragment that plastic into increasingly smaller particles that then can be uptaken by by organisms. Which means that it never really goes away. This plastic is just going to stay in the ocean. On a time scale that makes sense to humans, uh, plastic will will never fully disappear. So what is the solution or, or, or is there a solution? It sounds awfully bleak. So a couple of solutions are um, replacing plastics with plant-based, renewable, fiber-based materials that are truly compostable. We all know that with um, upwards of 8 billion people now, you can't expect everyone to do the right thing. So when we produce packaging, it must be benign. If it winds up in the environment, it shouldn't be lasting thousands of years and it shouldn't have negative impacts on on ecosystems. Another, can we look to actually replacing some packaging with better systems? Can we look at what is the product we're trying to deliver and and is there another way to get there? For example, um, there's a new coffee cup uh, company in, in London that's looking to replace the disposable cup with a reusable one that people can pick up at one shop and drop off at another, sort of like a bike share program. Okay. Um, so coming up with better alternatives, better systems, and then also holding producers accountable for what happens to the end life of their products. And if we do, they will design better products. Final question. I mean, what do I do at home? How can every individual make a difference? Fortunately, there are so many things that people can do. And if you do a quick uh, search on online, there are hundreds of hacks, um, things that we can do. The obvious ones, of course, not using plastic water bottles, um, plastic beverage containers, using our own, not using forks and cups and straws and bags, but looking to reusable alternatives. But I do want to emphasize, too, that people making these changes in their own Uh, daily life is not going to move the needle unless we engage more people in that journey. So sharing it with your friends and family, sharing it online, um, encouraging your place of work or your school, university to adopt similar strategies, and then to look uh, to the broader movement of zero waste. One more thing people can do after they've taken these steps in their personal life is go the extra mile and become an ambassador. So I know many NGOs have programs like this. Five Gyres has an ambassador program where people who want to get deeper involved in the issue and become trained in in going out and speaking to communities can engage and can can go that extra mile to try and drive change. Are you optimistic? Uh, It depends on the day you ask me, but at this very day, um, having spent some time with Storenzo and seeing the the potential for replacing a lot of our fossil fuel-based plastics with renewable materials, I am feeling inspired and optimistic. Anna Collins, thanks very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Renewable Future from the Renewable Materials Company, Store Enso. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for new programmes or any comments you may have. Mail to podcast at storeenso.com.